And I'm trying to remember, since we've been toggling back and forth, I don't think we've gotten that far. That's what makes the class good, Gene. We're doing verse by verse. <laughs> so. I have a mark on my Bible in Judah 20, 23rd verse, but I don't know if... I think, I, I, I think you may be right, Princess, because I'm looking here and some of this looks familiar. I think we got past past Peter um, chopping off the, the um, high priest servant's ear, I think. Yeah, we got past that, but did we go to... Peter denies. I think we did that. Some, we we did his denial? Or no, no. Yes, we did. Okay. You're right. We did. Okay, so um, I think we're starting with verse 33, did you say? Or 23? 23 was, uh, yeah, was when... I think we got through the first denial, and we were on the second. Okay, okay. So, so Peter, uh, so Anna sent Jesus bound Mm -hmm. to Caiaphas, the high priest. Imagining, imagine God being bound by human hands. And you think, uh, there must have been this, this lurking temptation in the back of Jesus' mind to just go... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As God he could have. But to have him bound. This this person who would never bind anyone, who loosed everybody, um, is now bound. And they sent him to Annas, I mean to Caiaphas. And so Annas gives up trying to deal with this. I don't think we did verse nineteen. Okay. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. What does that tell us about God? Transparency. Utter transparency. Nothing in secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he says it in Amos, doesn't he? Uh, that he makes he keeps nothing back. He makes everything known to his servants, the prophets. And the psalmist says, "With him, there are no secret places." Yeah. So he does nothing in secret. Is this is this a test of what's genuine and what's not? I think so. When things happen behind closed doors, when we talk behind people's backs when we scheme and plot, when we... I've seen this happen over the years of, of factions developing in places uh, and a lot of whispering and a lot of talking and a lot of scheming and a lot of plotting and a lot of covert actions. To me, that's a sign they're not of Jesus. They don't have that transparency. Uh, Christians are to be as transparent as the sunlight. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't talk about, okay, this is, this is why I'm right in my theology, and this is, etc. He simply says, I, you know, why don't you think about asking people who have heard mm-hmm, me? Mm-hmm. I've been very open about what I teach. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's what he says next. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. He does not capitulate. You notice? He does not capitulate. Mm -hmm. He does not 
back down. He does not cow. He does not submit. And they were so angry that when, when he said this, one of the police standing nearby struck Jesus in the face saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? He was supposed to submit to their authority, and Jesus did not. Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Jesus is doing a shift here. This is a trial. And as such, it has legal parameters. Jesus is doing a shift here from the normal forensic way, which is very controlled and very, very much about submission to the court. And Jesus is pointing them to what they really should be doing. This is actually a very fraudulent trial, right? Mm -hmm. They're doing it in secret in the middle of the night, and they are not even doing what is normal forensic pa pr uh, practice, which is to have eyewitnesses come and testify. And so Jesus is pointing them to that and says, if I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong, but if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? So he's asked them to, to get the testimonies, get the witnesses, the people who have heard him speak. But then he says, if I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. He's shifted it from what is at stake here is not whether I'm a heretic or not, but whether what I've said is true or not. You know, what's so diabolical about the plot is like when, on the one hand, they're afraid of him, you know, his popularity, his authority. They saw him march into Jerusalem, you know, like a king, even though he's riding on the back of a donkey. And, and then on the other hand, they're saying like, oh, we need someone to die for the Jewish people. Like we need him to be this perfect Passover lamb, you know. And so there's there's two things kind of going to each other. I, I think that I don't think that was really their agenda. I think that's what they said it was to kind of make it look more noble. Their their fear, their biggest fear, is that because Jesus is declared himself to be the Messiah, that it's going to bring the wrath of Rome on him. Mm -hmm. And that's why they want him put to death. They want to put him, him put to death so that Rome doesn't have a chance to have reprisal on him. That's their, but that's their cover story. Yeah. That's their cover story. Mm -hmm. The real story is they hate his teachings. Right, right, because it undermines <laughs> their authority. Right, right. So it's in that context that Anna sends Jesus bound to the high priest. Annas is done mm -hmm. when you know when he says, mm -hmm. "If I, if I, if I, what is wrong with what I've said, basically?" Mm -hmm. And they don't have an answer for that. No. So they send him bound to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas apparently is more cruel in nature than his uh, what is his father-in-law? Father yeah. Father-in-law Annas. So now Simon Peter. Well, we're back to Peter. Was standing warming himself. They asked him. You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, the cock crowed. So, then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. 
It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. That has to be the height of irony. Yeah. Committing the, the they, ultimate unclean act. And <laughs> yeah. But, you know, here's another test of the true versus the false. The false always gets hung up on trivia, mm-hmm. trivial manners. The false never is, sees the big picture. They only see a little piece of that big picture. So there they are, avoiding ritual defilement on the, on the trivial, where they go, the place they enter, so that they can eat the Passover lamb. But engaging in the ultimate defilement of murdering Jesus. Mm -hmm. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. (laughs) What kind of answer is that? (laughs) Stop asking us questions. Of course he deserves to be put to death. Pilate said to them, take him, yourself, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. What kind of death would Jesus have died if they could have put him to death? Mm. Stoning? Mm-hmm. They would have stoned him to death. Wow. And they would have based that on the law, is it in uh, Numbers, uh, the man, no, Leviticus, the man who blasphemes the name, Moses takes him to God, puts him in custody and takes him to God, and, and God says, have Israel stone him. Those who witnessed the blasphemy, cast the first stones. Put your hands on him, and then stone him to death. And they would have based that on that law, because they considered Jesus blasphemy. Yeah. But they, it's true, they were not permitted to put anyone to death, because Rome held that key in, its, in their hands. So they had to get permission from Pilate to put anybody to death. Or, actually, probably more likely, they had to get Pilate to put him to death. But John notes, this was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Mm -hmm. So because they had to go to Rome to get Jesus put to death, they the death he would die would be crucifixion. So John is referencing back uh, to John, is it John 10? Where Jesus says, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all to me. Mm-hmm. So we have here a picture that I want to map out. How many entities did it take to put Jesus to death? We have kind of the senior leader within the Sanhedrin, honestly, though he wasn't the high priest that year. His, his, his son-in-law, Herod, was involved too, but maybe not in this version. Okay, you have yeah. you have key players. You have um, you have Annas, you have Caiaphas, you have Pilate, you have Herod. So you have four players. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about entities. You took the Pharisees, right? Right, right. But it also took the Sadducees. 
-hmm. And the Sanhedrin, which was comprised of both, mm -hmm. but actually waited in Sadducees. Mm -hmm. And it took the Roman government. Mm -hmm. So you have religion that is divided in two parts, and you have the state. It's also divided in two parts, really, because they had Herod, Herod, like a Herod and Pilate, and, and then Roman. You, you, know, you could say so, but but this Herod and Pilate actually become friends over this, and they mm -hmm. coalesce, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, became closer in unity over this. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm, I'm leaning toward three parts mm -hmm. is look at Revelation. See, I believe that John saw Old Jerusalem as Babylon. Mm. that's not our interpretation of it now but I think it behooves us to take that into consideration and think about how it, what it applies to now so Revelation 18 by the way I think it's a complex enough book that it's okay for it to have more than one interpretation <laughs> you know um. I guess maybe I'm looking at 16 16 excuse me yeah it's 16 um it's following the last plagues. Okay. Verse 18. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a violent earthquake, such as not occurred. Does this remind you of anything? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The death of Jesus. The death of Jesus, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. By the way, the last plagues are a take on the death of Jesus. They symbolize everything that took place in Jesus' death. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there's this violent earthquake such as not occurred since the people were upon the earth. So violent was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, mm. and the cities of the nations fell. Now, you could say it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. Mm -hmm. But I like to think that it, didn't, it wasn't just that that it took to put Jesus to death. It took also Rome. And this reaching out to the state mm -hmm. to get the state to deal with this imposter as they thought he was and the reason the reason I, I highlight this is because I believe that truth usually stands in the middle between two fanatical extremes mm -hmm. and the two extremes polarize and, and fight each other and one pushes the other farther into an extreme and the other pushes the other farther into an extreme truth is somewhere in the middle as a, a completely different paradigm a completely different option and I see Jesus as in that middle mm -hmm. part and he becomes the catalyst by which the two extremes come together to put him to death and we're struggling with this particular modality right now in the Adventist Church. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we have two sides. We have the Pharisaic side, and we have the Sadducee side. And those two sides push each other. Mm -hmm. And in the middle are thinking people who don't buy either side. Mm -hmm. And they are few and it will be, and they're few in number. And what's going to happen is that if this paradigm follows this 
this modality, and I think this is a description of whatever happens at any time that this kind of thing takes place. What's likely to happen is there's going to be a cruci- attempt at crucifixion in the middle. And it will not be able to take place until they have to appeal to the state. Now, this could happen rather quickly if something that isn't expected to happen happens this coming year. But um, it, it could be farther in the future, who knows. But it's, the dynamics of this really make sense in terms of everything we know about last day events. Because it isn't, the, pers- the persecution and time of trouble is not supposed to be the state taking over religion, mm-hmm. but religion taking over the state. Mm-hmm and making the state party to their designs. And that has begun. That has begun as of last week with Congress. Um, Our religious freedom is not the same now. And then it will slowly tick away at it until we add a little bit more freedom, take a little bit more freedom here, take a little bit more there. So, now we are at Pilate, verse 33. Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And there's something missing here. Nothing has been said about Jesus being king of the Jews at all. Where does Pilate get that? Maybe, you know, he'd heard, I mean, I'm sure he's heard, he'd heard uh, the story about him entering the, the triumphal entry a week ago, you know, well, five days before. and um, Okay. He'd heard about this uh, Messiah figure who uh, marched into Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That could be. Normally in Hebrew writing, and I, I consider John to be Hebrew mm-hmm. in his style of writing. Mm-hmm. Normally in Hebrew writing... You don't leave a gap like this. There's some <laughs> clue somewhere to what, where he got this. There's another possibility. I, I, I like what you're saying. Um, there's another possibility that we can also put out on the table that Pilate knows the only me- reason he can put anyone to death or allow the Jews to put anyone to death is if he has another false messiah who's who's corrupting things and carrying out uh, seditious uh, plots against the Roman government. So we're just wondering where Pilate gets the idea that Jesus is king of the Jews. And the interesting thing is John doesn't leave this out completely because look at the next verse. Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own? Or did others tell you about me? How do you know? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? (laughs) Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? That's the only thing I can think of. (laughs) You must be a king. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. 
But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. I like the way your version says it better. This is as it is, says mine, which I hadn't, you know, but now my kingdom is from another place. Um, yeah, know, like, that, is that NIV? Yeah, because I've always thought of it as like, but my kingdom is from another place instead of this now thing kind of. The now thing, well, it, it gives them a loophole to be able to to say that someday his kingdom will be from this world. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know? right. No, his kingdom has never been from this world and it right. never will be. Right. It kind of like contrasts the two different um, like ideologies that, that, they, that they both hold. One kingdom is fighting um, to keep and then the other, the other kingdom doesn't even like enter into... Mm-hmm. Enter into you know, um, if you take Jesus seriously, what Jesus is saying, <clears throat> that my kingdom is pacifist. Mm-hmm. My followers won't fight. My followers won't fight back. Do you know how hard it is to teach pacifism today? I just this week had two discussions. <laughs> One in my ethics class and one in my books of Moses class on self-defense. And my students get more, if I want to get a good discussion going, that's the question to talk about. <laughs> is, is it appropriate to do self-defense? Is it appropriate to kill in self-defense? And uh, it was in my second class, books of Moses, yesterday, that the room just kind of exploded, and students were asking question after question, and, and uh, one student was so full of questions, I couldn't answer them. You know, I'd, I'd start in and get one sentence down, and, and he'd ask another question, and but, but, da, da, da. And uh, <clears throat> it got out of hand, and he was a, he's a very funny kid, very likable, mm-hmm. uh, but very funny, and he was triggering everybody in the room. And everybody was, <laughs> it was kind of like, oh, let's play off the, te- off the teacher, you know. <laughs> and things were getting just a little bit out of control. And uh, I decided if they were going to learn anything, I had to bring some order into it. And so I said, and I called him by name, listen to me. I called his name twice. I said, listen to me, please. I think you want you respect my. I said, um, please. I I believe you will take my position by as respect with respect. And I said, I am a pacifist. And then I unpacked it in a way I didn't expect to. But my stance is this: um, the killology field. Have you ever heard of killology? A psychologist uh, by the name of David Grossman, who's a Christian, but also has worked with the military and with law enforcement, I believe, in, on what it takes to, for a human being to kill another human being. Mm. And, and in his study, he has done a study of all, almost all species. Almost all species will not kill their own kind. They have a built-in aversion mm. to killing their own kind. And you think about it. In, in World War I, World War II, the only way the two sides could kill each other was to consider the other side as vermin or as as non-human or as subhuman. Mm-hmm. So I was explaining to them how David Grossman says that this aversion to killing one's own kind has kept in previous wars, clear back to the Civil War, they did a study of muskets 
that were fired. There were sometimes as many as 40 rounds in the, in the musket. They spent more time loading than they did firing. Mm-hmm. And they, when they did fire, they fought, shot over the enemy's head. And, and most of the, in all ancient wars, most of the killing took place as the enemy turned and ran, stabbing them in the back. Starting with the Korean War, and especially with the Vietnam War, that began to change. They began to find that 15% of soldiers fired to kill. That's like, he likened it to wow. having librarians, 15% of librarians can read, you know. <laughs> not a very effective war. So uh, they developed killology. The only way you can get a human being to kill another human being is to demoralize them. And the way you demoralize them is through brutalization and desensitization, role modeling, operant conditioning, and classical conditioning. That's what's used in the military services. Mm-hmm. To demoralize a person, to get them to break through that barrier that's in their midbrain that keeps them from killing their own kind. So I told my students, I said, you know, if I even have a gun in my house, I'm already demoralized if I can think of killing someone. I said, if somebody comes at me, I I believe I can pray to God for protection, and if he sees fit, he will protect me. But if not, I said, my character is more important to me. My moral character, my spiritual character is more important to me than whether I live or die. (coughs) Well, what if you have someone to protect? (laughs) Some loved ones. Well, that is the hardest question to answer. You know, I mean, don't I feel responsible? But I sometimes think, and this may sound hard, but I sometimes think we put more responsibility on ourselves than we really have. I think the responsibility for our lives belongs to God, and we can leave it with Him. I will do my best to protect my family by, by getting them out of the house or, or uh, hiding or whatever I can do. I will try to call law enforcement. Uh, they're the ones that the Bible has designated to take care of criminals. I would do all these things. But for me, the bottom line is I cannot take another person's life, even in self-defense. Now, I'm a, a strict pacifist. Not all pacifists are that strict. But, but I see Jesus is saying that my kingdom, and, the, and he picks on this thing of fighting as the core of his kingdom. His kingdom will not fight back. Pilate asked him, so you are a king. And this is where it's not, you know, we have gone over this before. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, think, I think we saw a little more light today. <clears throat> Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. It's not you say that I'm a king and you're right. It's you say that I'm a king. It's emphatic in the Greek. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Testifying to the truth is the opposite of kingly power. To the extent that we seek power, we lose the truth. Because power corrupts. Power is the opposite of integrity, which is the basis of truth. Ellen White wrote in Testimonies, Volume 5, she wrote, The church is a power which should control its individual members 
page 107. So you're saying that the church should control its members? What, how does the church control its members? Inquisitionally? Even though God can't control us, we have a short choice. How does God control us? Let's ask that question. Does he use force? Mm-mm. God controls us by love. It is the love of Jesus that constrains us. Mm-hmm. The church is to be that kind of power. The power of love. Because that's, that's the true nature of God's power. Uh, p- power corrupts. And the corruption it has is the corruption of the truth. To get to the truth, we have to give up our, our power to control others with it. Otherwise, we will always not see the truth. It blinds Power blinds the eyes. Power blinds the vision. So Jesus didn't say, I came, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world to have power, but to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. This is the opposite of fighting your way, mm-hmm. the opposite of force, the opposite mm-hmm. of gaining power. That's why Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, compelling fa- power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not a disorder. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and truth. And the presentation, not the enforcement, but the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. And then she says God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. So this, this is everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said, what is truth? He wants to evade. This is getting too close to home because if there's anybody who's in the power structure, it's Pilate. After he'd said this, he didn't listen for Jesus' answer. He went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was abandoned. A murderer. What's amazing to me is even the politicization there. Barabbas is a threat to the Roman government. Jesus yeah. isn't a threat to anybody. Well, the Jewish authorities, but like he wasn't a threat to the Roman government. You know, and like he still acquiesced to what and, their and wishes he, were. Here's, here's the question I have. How was he a threat to the Jews, to the Jewish <laughs> leaders? How was he such a threat? Well, because he was basically challenging, you know, their authority. Well, how did he challenge them? Yeah, because he told the truth. Like, he just told the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's the thing. You, you know, know like, it, I testified to the truth. When I, I first, when I was first converted to the picture of God that I have given my life to share. I, I couldn't believe, I, I doubted that it was the truth on one reason. It was so beautiful and so lo- lovely that I assumed the whole world would accept it and mm-hmm. adopt it. And then we'd have no persecution and then t- its final events wouldn't come. And, and it had to be, it must be false then. It must not be the truth. And I never dreamed back then that I would find so much opposition to that view. Mm-hmm. But there is a tremendous amount of opposition. 
to Jesus' nature of his true kingdom. Why do you suppose that is? I haven't been able to understand it experientially because it won my heart. <laughs> so the only thing I can say is before conversion, I was in a very dark place. Judging, criticizing, condemning, finding fault with every Adventist I was around. Nobody was righteous enough in my eyes. I was totally self-righteous bigot. <laughs> and but I never, I never opposed this this truth. I I already had encountered it and and liked it and embraced it, but it hadn't changed my heart. You know, it was up, up here somewhere, uh, at a distance from my heart. And it was my conversion that changed my heart. Yes, so, but how do you tell the real from the imposter? You mentioned the imposter earlier. I, I, like I think to me, it's I like that description. Basically, it's to break it in really simple: self-interest versus looking out for the interests of others yes. and the interests of God. And and the Is that self. All? Well, I think that's what I think. I that's, think and it's purest form. Big component, right? It, it, it is. It is the whole picture, because every time we rise up against something, we're protecting ourselves. And we may not admit it, we may not think that, but that's the modality. Behind. Well, you see, the face of the serpent no longer looks like the face of the serpent when any of us knowingly deviate from Scripture. That's the other part. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the other part. The Scripture should lead us to, self, to not self-interest. The Scripture should lead us, to, because what, what takes place of our self-interest is the love of Jesus. And that's what the scriptures are for, is to proclaim the love of Jesus. Sin is what hurts us. It is, it is, when, we, when we engage in self-interest, which is the heart of sin, we are hurting ourselves. We don't even know it. Because we're cutting ourselves off from the source of life, which is love. Uh, the law of love is the law of life. And when we cut ourselves off from that, we lose, we lose that, and we lose the scriptures in the process. Because we may read, Jesus said, you search the scriptures, and yet you, can't, you, re, you, refuse, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You search the scriptures because you think that in them, in searching the scriptures, you have eternal life. Yet they are they which testify of me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Why? They were searching the scriptures, but not finding Jesus. And I think that's, that's the key to a lot of our friction in the church. If our eyes were on Jesus, we would have no friction because we would be filled with his love mm -hmm. and we would not be backbiting, annihilating one another with our tongues. It's not what we know here. It's what's in here and, and how it translates into what's in here with our hands and our feet. You know how we act, not not just what we know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus always says that, like when he's talking about um, determining um, whether or not they're following him, it's like knowing by their fruits, and like he's always pointing to how um, he's always pointing to the heart. In terms of like that, always speaks out into everything that we do, and mm -hmm. it and it directs yeah. us. There has to be there has to be total engagement of the whole person, the mind understanding. The heart experiencing and changing the life and ha translating into how we treat one another. And, and that really is how Jesus ran his ministry. Think of all the stories we've read in the last months 
uh, last years of Jesus healing people, he always, always reached out to them <laughs> Where, and healed the whole person. He didn't just, okay, you're healed, okay, you're healed. He would, he would engage them and heal them in such a way as to transform them uh, from the inside out. Well, our time is up. And uh, this is we we came actually to the end of the chapter. <laughs> I think I think progress. this is about as fast as we've gone, but that's good. We, that's good. Well, we reviewed some <laughs> stuff actually. Um, okay, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for Jesus, Amen. Who gave us not only the revelation of your character but gave us the revelation of who we can become in you. I pray that you will fill us and transform us through your love, through the power of the Holy Spirit. May we see you as we never have seen you before, more clearly and more fully. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.